This morning, we are asking the famous question posed by the philosopher Hathaway in his 1993 hit Eurodance single, What is Love? And everybody says, baby, don't hurt me, no more, amen. Um, Of course, love is one of the most difficult words to define, perhaps one of the most difficult word in the English language. We know instinctively what love feels like, but it's difficult to put it into words. Uh, Love is a feeling, love is an action. I've heard love defined as commitment, uh, sacrifice. Is it attraction, is it sex, is it something more than that? Uh, Hadaway, the guy who sang the song, What is Love, he said this in an interview. People always ask me about what I meant. I meant that what is love needs to be defined by everyone by his own definition. It's unique and individual. And that's probably the most common belief about love today. Love is love, and only you know what love means for you. Well, the problem is that if everyone is defining love for themselves, then nobody knows what love actually means. And this leads us to our present time in which a massive number of us feel a lack of love in our lives. From the World Health Organization declaring that widespread loneliness is an epidemic in our culture, to the CDC reporting that 2022 had the highest number of suicides ever recorded. Ours is the age in which love can mean anything and it can mean nothing. And that is killing us. And that's just human love. But of course, this confusion about love applies to divine love as well. Uh, Christians can study the love of God. We can examine all the different ways it's described in the Bible. We can sing songs about God's love. But I suspect that for most of us, the problem is not that we lack information about the love of God, but that rather deep in our souls, we doubt whether he really does love us. God's love seems theoretical. It doesn't seem real. It doesn't sink down from our head down into our hearts. I don't know what your story is. I I grew up in the church Uh, and became a Christian at a young age. But there came a point in college when despite all the Sunday school lessons that I had been taught, I began to wonder whether God really loved me. And this is what it felt like. It felt like on the one hand, I had all of this head knowledge that was taught to me about God's love for me. But on the other hand, I had all of this negative evidence that was piling up. There were my sins that I had committed. There was the suffering that I was facing. There was my own insecurities about who I was. And all of it was whispering to me every morning, you're unlovable. God doesn't really care about you. Have you ever felt that kind of fear? I suspect that many of us have, even those of us who have followed Jesus for a long time. For most of us, every day is a struggle to believe that we are really Deeply, truly loved. We need love, but we're lost as to what it is, where it comes from, or how to do it. We long for human love. We long for God's love, but both of them seem fragile at best and unattainable at worst. 
Now, that is a terrible place to be. It's not just a modern problem, though. See, the Apostle John wrote the book of 1 John as a letter to a network of churches who were experiencing a conflict from within these churches. A group of false teachers had broken away, and they were causing a lot of confusion. We, we don't exactly know everything that these false teachers were teaching, but it seemed to center around two things. Uh, one, rejecting the divinity of Jesus, and two, pulling people apart through conflict and disunity. So notice that at the heart of this book, the book of 1 John, is what Jesus said are the first and second greatest commandments, to love God and to love your neighbor. So John writes a powerful letter that calls Christians back to love, to God's love and to love for one another. In the passage we're going to be reading today in uh, 1 John 4, John is meditating on how God's love teaches us to love one another. And honestly, given the confusion of our world around this topic of love, I can think of few topics that are more relevant for our souls and for our society than this. I, I believe that if we can see and enjoy God's love more richly, if you do that, then your relationship with God will grow much deeper, your relationships with other human beings as well, and then our witness to the world will be changed by God's love. That is why we need 1 John. So if you're taking notes, this is kind of the big idea. We're looking at 1 John 4, verses 7 through 21. The big idea can be found in verse 19. It's a nice, succinct summary of John's main point, and it's this. We love because he first loved us. We love God because he first loved us, and we love each other because God first loved us. So in these verses, John is going to explain three things. First, the outcome, or sorry, first, the origin of love. Second, the definition of love. And third, the outcomes of love. The origin, the definition, and the outcomes. So let's go ahead and read the passage, 1 John 4, starting in verse 7 through verse 21, and then we'll walk through each of those ideas. If you don't have a Bible, it'll also be up on the screen. There it is. Perfect. 1 John 4, starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of, he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. 
For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You can see how differently John writes from the other apostles like Paul and Peter. Uh, John doesn't develop his ideas in a linear, logical progression. This and this, then this, therefore this. Uh, That can be very frustrating if that's how you like to think. Instead, John invites us to ponder a very simple idea that he'll just put in the middle there, like love, and he'll look at it from every different angle. And it shows us how even those basic concepts are rich for meditation. So just a fair warning, uh, this morning we're going to be swimming in the deep end of the pool a little bit, but I'll try my best to give us some floaties to keep our head above the water. Sound good? So what John wants us to observe first about love is that it originates with God. The origin of love is God. Let's look at verse 7 again. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, most of the major religions of the world would affirm that love comes from God or from some divine source. Uh, The secular version of this is that love is God, that human beings are a mess, but the thing that can save us all is love. Have you ever heard that before? Maybe you heard it from the Beatles, who told us that all we need is love. That's all we need. Uh, Jackie DeShannon crooned that what the world needs now is love, sweet love, that's right. But John goes a step further in verse 8. And one theologian called this verse, verse 8, the most daring statement that has ever been made in the human language. It's pretty wild. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. This idea is completely new and original to Christianity. No other religion or worldview believes that God is love. John is telling us an essential truth about who God is. Nowhere else in the Bible are we told that God is a specific attribute or character quality. For example, as far as I know, and you can correct me after the sermon if, if If you want, maybe don't shout out, you're wrong during the sermon, but you can correct me later. As far as I know, the Bible never says God is righteousness. It says that God is righteous, but as far as I know, it doesn't say that he is righteousness. We're told that God is holy, but I don't think it ever tells us that God is holiness. We're told that God is just, but not that he is justice. John could have very easily written, God is loving. And we would all nod our heads to that. And God is described that way elsewhere in the Bible. But John doesn't do that. God is not simply a loving being. Love is not just one of God's many activities, but rather all that he does, all of his activities are love. God's not just an example of love. He is love. I want you to grasp this. The very God whom we worship, the God we were singing to, in his very being is love itself. I was a philosophy major. Uh, I think that everybody should be a philosophy major. So if you're a college student and you'd like me to convince you why you should be a philosophy major, come talk to me after the service. And if you don't want to be convinced, then don't talk to me after the service. Um, But 
in philosophical terms, John tells us that God's love is ontological. Ontology is the study of being, what it means to exist. So we are human beings. That's our ontology. And in the same way, God is love. Love is the basic description of who he is. If someone were to ask us, uh, what is your God made of? Well, the best answer would be, well, our God is not made of anything. Our God made everything. He is the maker. He existed before time. But maybe the second best answer would be, well, if you want to use those terms, our God is made of love. That sounds very strange to us. What, what does it mean practically that God is love? Well, love is an inherently relational thing. You can't be love by yourself. It needs someone or something to love. But the problem is that God doesn't need anyone or anything. His existence is independent. So if you were to get to the core of reality, if you were to strip away everything that was created, including human beings and the universe itself, what would you find God doing? Before page one of the Bible, what was God doing? The scriptures tell us that at the beating heart of the universe is a loving relationship within God himself. God was always loving because he is love. This is where we come to the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. We believe in one God and three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. These three persons are all equally God and have eternally existed in a loving unity. This is why Jesus says confusing things like, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or his prayer in John 17, Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now this is peering into mystery course. But the basic truth that John wants us to grasp here is that love existed before anything else. The universe is not just a random collection of atoms that happen to be there. Life is not just survival of the fittest. The world is not an inherently violent place, at least not at its core. The one who made this world is love. That is the way it's meant to be. God's love is more foundational to reality than matter or the laws of gravity. I was watching the Christopher Nolan movie Interstellar recently. Have you guys seen that one? Uh, it's fantastic. It's mind-boggling. Um, if you haven't seen it, a group of astronauts are crossing space to find a new planet for human beings to inhabit. And while they're on the way, the astronauts get in a conversation about love. Now, they're a group of scientists, so they think in terms of what can be measured and observed and analyzed, and, and love isn't any of those things, so does it have meaning? And Cooper, who's played by Matthew McConaughey, says, all right, all right, all right, uh, he says, love has meaning. I think love has meaning. It has social utility. It has social bonding. It helps us with child rearing. But then Brand, who's played by Anne Hathaway, she has a profound reply she says, we love people who have died. Well, where's the social utility in that? Maybe it means something more, something we can't yet understand. Maybe it's some evidence, some artifact of a higher dimension that we can't consciously perceive. Love is the one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space. Maybe we should trust that, even if we can't understand it. And when I heard Anne Hathaway's character say that, I was floored. The movie is more correct than it knows. 
What transcends time and space is the triune God who made time and space. And that triune God is love. Now let's move on from here to the definition of love in verses 9 and 10. Remember our big idea. We love because he first loved us. John has just said that God's love existed before anything else. And now he's going to move from where love comes from to what love is and what love does. As we've said, there are many conflicting definitions of love in our world today. So how does John define love? How would you define love? Let's read verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. For John, love is not an abstract feeling. It's not just an idea. It's an action. We know love by what it does. And God is love. And in the Trinity, God's love is pure enjoyment in relationship that's existed before the foundation of the world will always exist into eternity. But that love is mostly unseen. Even in the Bible, we just catch a glimpse every now and then of what that must have been like for the Father to love the Son, to love the Spirit purely. This love between the Father, Son, and Spirit is woven into the fabric of the universe. But how does that Trinitarian love show itself? What does that love do? John says that the clearest and highest example of love is the Father giving his Son, his very self, for unworthy sinners. God's love does not desire to take or get or receive, but to give even to those who don't deserve it. The word propitiation uh, in verse 10 is a classic Bible word that means wrath-bearing sacrifice. As Israel offered animals uh, to, to atone for their sins, to offer to God their sorrow, their lament, God offered his son as the final wrath-bearing sacrifice so that for anyone who believes in Jesus, there's no more wrath, there's no more guilt, there's no more punishment, nothing but life and nothing but love from God. Earlier in the letter, John wrote, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. So while the origin of love is the divine relationship of the Trinity. God's love isn't most clearly demonstrated in the Trinity, but in the incarnation. God is love beyond time and space. Think about this with the Advent season coming soon with Christmas when you see a a nativity set. God's love broke into time and space in the form of a man, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life of love who died as a perfect sacrifice for those he loved, and who rose again to show that God's love and life can conquer even death itself. The gospel is the supreme demonstration of God's love for you. So what I want, whenever you see a nativity set, whenever you see a cross, what I want the first word to come into your mind to be is love. That is God's love for me. Do you see how this is good news, how it gives an answer to all your wondering, all your doubt and insecurity about whether you are really loved? Do you want to know whether the Father really loves you? Do you want to know whether there's anyone out there who cares for you? Jesus died for you. 
And he rose again for you. And he calls you beloved. God's love is not dependent upon our feelings or our obedience. John is well aware that our love for God is fickle. Did you see that in verse 10? In this is love, not that we've loved God. Because let's be honest, even on our best days, we don't love God with our whole hearts and minds and souls and strength. And this is love that he loved us. The novelist Victor Hugo once said, the greatest happiness in life is the conviction that we are loved. Loved for ourselves, or rather, loved in spite of ourselves. In Christ, there is nothing you could do that would make God love you more. And there is nothing you have done that makes him love you less. Let me say that again. In Christ, there is nothing you could do that would make God love you more. And there's nothing you have done that makes him love you less. Do you know that? Do you believe that? He loves you, people. He loves you. He calls you beloved. I don't know what it is in the human heart that makes us automatically resist that. As soon as we hear that, we put up walls. We come up with excuses. We say, no, it couldn't possibly be. Measure God's love for you by the cross and by nothing else. Not by your circumstances, not by your feelings. This is the standard. This event, the cross, is what defines true love. It defines what true love is. It defines what true love does. So let's summarize what we've seen so far. If we take, on the first hand, the eternal love of the Trinity as the origin of love, and second, the cross as the greatest manifestation of that love, then we get a working definition of love. I put it up here. I think love is both delighting in another, that's from the Trinity, and it's giving yourself for their benefit. That's the cross. And both elements are necessary for love. For example, think about a marriage. If a husband delighted in his wife simply for who he is, if he had that first kind of love, enjoying her presence, he loves his wife for who she is, but if that husband never served her, never gave up his rights or his way of doing things, then we would say that wouldn't be a loving husband. In the same way, if a wife faithfully served her husband, gave her time and energy to do things for him, had that second category of love, but never expressed joy at being with her husband, just never wanted to be with him for him, just enjoy his presence, then we would say that would not be a loving wife. Love is delight and it's self-giving. And they actually lead to each other. So when we lay down our lives, we get our hands dirty in the hard work of serving someone else in love, we find ourselves delighting in them more, don't we? And when we feel love and attachment to someone, we want to serve them. We want to give ourselves to them. That is the dance of love. The Father loves and serves the Son who loves and serves the Spirit who loves and serves the Father and so on and so forth. That is the love that originates with God who is love. And it's defined for us by the God who laid down his life out of his great love for us. So I hope that provides clarity. It provided clarity for me as as I hear this word love, I'm thinking through the lens. Love is both delight and its service. Finally, let's look at the outcomes of love. 
the clear command repeated multiple times in this passage is that we should love one another like God loves us. But the reason why we should love, it might surprise you. Did you notice verses 11 and 12? They're remarkable. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, verse 12 can be confusing, right? He's just described how God is love perfectly throughout eternity. Is John saying here, though, that there is something in God's love that's lacking, that's deficient, that needs improving, so that when we love each other, we perfect God's love? Well, I know, I think it's better to read the word perfect as complete, complete God's love. You might think of it as the chain reaction or the domino effect of love. Love begins with God in the Trinity, and then it collides with human sin by overcoming it with Jesus' love on the cross. And then for those who have been saved by Jesus, God's love flows through us toward others. People can't see God, but they can see how much we love each other. John Stott put it this way, the unseen God who was once revealed in the Son is now revealed in his people when they love each other. And that is, that is actually quite remarkable. Your love, as mundane as it seems in the moment, is an extension of God's love. When you wipe the mess off of your kid's face, when you console a friend who's grieving, when you listen to someone rather than lash out at them, when you give money to someone who needs it more, when you spend an afternoon helping a friend move, when you love through delight and sacrifice, people can see God's love in us. Christian love is, is trademarked. You know, if you, what, where does this love from, from, come from? It is made in God's love. From here, then, John explores three more outcomes of love. Okay, so people can see God, God's love through our love for one another. What else does love do? Well, first, Christians abide in Trinitarian love, and that Trinitarian love, too, casts out fear, and third, it casts out hatred. Let's explore each one of those, and with each of them, I'm going to offer a question for applying these principles in your life. What can love do in your life and in the life of our church here? So first, outcome of love, Christians abide in Trinitarian love. Let's read verses 13 to 16 again. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So notice the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all mentioned here because God is love. So John is describing how the Trinity delights in and serves one another. The Father sends the Son, and he elevates him to be the Savior and the King. The Son obeys the Father in joy and sends the Spirit to the people. The Spirit loves to lift up the name of the Father and the Son. But did you catch the scandalous claim that John makes? When we become a Christian, The Spirit invites us 
to experience the love of the Trinity. He uses the language of abiding, dwelling, living, resting. See, the Christian home is not a place. The true home for our hearts and souls is the God who is love. What he's doing in these verses, what John is describing, is how the Trinity, yes, has loved itself. God is love. And then in Christ, the Spirit says, come on in. Come on in. Just catch a taste of what this is like. This is true love. God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Human relationships will fail us, even the best ones. As we've said at the beginning, we all long for love, but love lets us down. But not this love. Verse 16, so we have come to know and to believe the, God, the love that God has for us. In the gospel, we don't have to wonder and doubt if God loves us. We can know it for certain. We can believe it with assurance. What God promises here is that you were made to experience this delight. We get the God of love when we get Christ. The end goal of salvation is not that you get eternal life, that you get to go to heaven or whatever else. The end experience of love, uh, of the gospel, is that you get to experience love, the love of God. If you were offered forgiveness for your sins, eternal life without God, then those who truly know him would just pass on that. I don't want forgiveness of my sins if I don't get God. I don't want eternal life if I don't get God. Heaven is only heaven if God is there with us. So here's a question for you to ponder this week. Do you know and believe the love that God has for you? A little while ago, I noticed that when I started my day by looking at my phone, I'd be checking the news, seeing who texted me, looking at my to-do list and calendar for the day. When I started to do that, I started to define my day by what I saw first thing in the morning. I started to define my, myself, but also to define God's love for me by whatever I saw. If I saw bad news or if I saw a stressful thing for that day coming up, then I would start to define God's love for me by that. Oh, God must not really love me. Just instinctively, I started doing that. The way my morning began determined whether I was abiding in God's love or not. So over the past few months, I've, I've tried a little experiment. Maybe it's, it'll be helpful for you. Uh, I've tried to start my day with a quiet minute or two in bed to pray, Father, you love me. You love me. You love me. Help me believe you love me. Help me know it. You love me. Christian, you are not made to abide in doubt of God's love. You are meant to abide in love. So perhaps pray this week, God, show me your love. Invite me into the dance of Trinitarian love that existed in eternity past. Ground me in the definitive declaration of love that was shown on the cross. I believe you love me. Help my unbelief. Christians abide in Trinitarian love. Second, outcome of love. Abiding in this kind of love casts out fear. Look at verses 17 and 19. These are very famous verses. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. 
For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. I I can't help but think of the Michael Scott quote from The Office. Would I rather be feared or loved? Easy, both. I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. Um, God is not like that, fortunately. John is not talking about the fear of the Lord, which means reverence. No, because God loves us, we do not have to fear judgment or punishment. We know that we are accepted. When we have truly grasped the grace of God offered to us in the gospel, we don't need to pray for salvation over and over and over again. Every new sin is not held against your record. We make a plea deal with the judge on the basis of the blood of Jesus, and then all the charges are dropped in an instant, never to be returned. This means that Christians long for Jesus to return rather than fear the end. We are filled with anticipation for seeing the one who made us and loves us face to face. Perfect love casts out fear. Can you imagine a relationship, a human relationship that had no fear whatsoever? Every human relationship has a little bit of fear in there. Even the best friendships or marriages have an element of danger to them because the closer you get to someone, the more that they could hurt you. I never knew the kind of fear a parent feels for their children until my son Julian was born. Then I felt a kind of fear in that relationship. C.S. Lewis, though, wrote that danger isn't necessarily a bad thing in our relationships, and he's worth quoting at length here. He said, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Or as the poet Maya Angelou put it, have enough courage to trust love one more time and always one more time. So here's a question for you to consider this week. How can the love of God cast out your fear? What do you fear? Maybe that's a place for you to start in prayer to God. What do I fear most? What do I actually fear? Not, you know, some of you might have a fear of spiders. I hate spiders. But what, what are your deep fears? The ones you would barely even whisper to yourself. The question is really whether you believe that God's love, his perfect love, can meet your needs and give you what is best, even if it's sometimes frightening. This adds just another layer to the prayer, your will be done. Really, the prayer is your will be done because you love me and I trust you. So, Christians abide in Trinitarian love. That Trinitarian love casts out fear because it provides us a place of safety and trust. The final outcome of love that John describes is that Trinitarian love casts out hatred. Verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. 
Now, this is where John's blunt language can be kind of confusing. Loving and hating are the two broad categories. So if love is both delighting in someone and giving yourself for them, then hatred is the opposite of that. It's dismissing someone. It's acting selfishly, which we do every day. What John says is that loving one another is not optional for the Christian. We know this, but it's worth saying again. If our experience of God's love doesn't overflow into love for your neighbor, then John concludes that there's something deficient in our experience of God's love. Go back to the source. John's logic is this. How can you say that you're experiencing the unseen Trinitarian love of God? I just feel God's love. How can you say that if we can see very clearly that you are not loving the people around you? We can't see your experience of God's love. You might have a fantastic prayer life, a wonderful time of devotion, reading the scriptures, meditating on it alone, but we can see how you treat your city group or your kids or your friends or the stranger on the street. We can actually see that, and that actually shows the condition of our love. But the fact is, none of us will love our brothers or sisters perfectly. And that would fill us with fear, except remember that perfect love casts out fear. So instead, what do we do when we recognize, you're right, there is something wrong with my love. When we recognize this routine hatred within ourselves, we should go back to the origin and the definition, the source and the definition of love. When we fail to love someone, we're meant to ask this question, and maybe this question will ring in your ears this week. How can God's love for me teach me how to love this person better? Go back to the manual. Go back to the drawing board. It's the question I want you to ask yourself and pray when your love fails the standard. You might need to ask this question right now as you're sensing an area in your life where I am not loving this person well, and I say that I love God, but it is not flowing through me in, in the right way. Something's blocked there. And I want God to help figure this out, figure out, teach me. I wanna learn, I wanna be a disciple. How do I love? How do I love? We have so much to learn about love, but we always have the best teacher the one who is and will always be love. Now, there is certainly quite a lot in those verses. Um, it might be worth your while this week to, to read through this passage again and see if there's one phrase that you need to ponder or meditate, repeat on. That's the beauty of John is that you could take one verse and sit on it for a month and never plummet's depths. Let me close by bringing us back to the big idea. We love because he first loved us. He loved you before anything else existed, and he showed you the depths of his love by dying for your sins. So now, Rock Hill, abide in this love and love one another. Do you know and believe the love that God has for you? Do you know and believe it? How can the love of God cast out your fear? How can God's love for you teach you how to love people better? You have no reason to fear. You have no grounds for hatred. We are the people who know what love is, and we can show it to the world.